Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. As I write in my upcoming book, What We Sow on the Personal, Ecological, and Cultural Significance of Seeds, seeds are to the plant kingdom as a messiah is to many religions, the alpha and omega, the beginning end and beginning again of the majority of Earth's plant lives, the spermatophytes or seed-bearing plants. This week, we kick off a several-part series looking into the state of seeds, specifically wildland seed, for conservation and ecological restoration in our world from a variety of perspectives. We start off in conversation with Andrea Williams, the Director of Biodiversity Initiatives with the California Native Plant Society and contributor to both the proposed California Seed Strategy and from there, the National Seed Strategy. Andrea, after having the great pleasure of speaking with you at the California Native Plant Society's Conservation Conference last October, I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I've introduced you in a very formal way. I would love to have you tell listeners yourself about how you introduce yourself and maybe include in that the ways in which plants play a role in your life as a gardener, as a scientist, as friends out there in the field, any of the above, Andrea? Sure. So in my work life, I am a vegetation ecologist by training and and by trade longstanding. And some of the things that I really enjoy doing is going out and and meeting plants and understanding the rhythms of the land. Um, so I've had the pleasure of stewarding some really beautiful places, mostly in in coastal Northern California, and um, not only looking at plants and knowing what they are, but how they persist in the landscape and change, um, and also kind of assigning metrics and doing planning so that um, we're successful in the goals that we have for the landscape. Um, personally, my relationship to nature and people is somewhat similar to classical stoicism, which includes all humans as my siblings and all nature as my relations. And it's my duty to care for all of them. And so that really moves me in my career and in my life. Beautiful, beautiful. Just so people are clear on on what it means, and, and we we're going we're gonna to get into um, a lot of the detail of your career, but can you define vegetation ecologist? I mean, I think you kind of just did, but if there's anything to add to that, please do. Sure. So the vegetation piece is, is probably relatively simple for folks to think about the, the plants and the landscape. Ecology more broadly is, is the study of the systems of life and of biodiversity and, and of nature. And so mm-hmm. my specific training is in plants. Um, so that's where I feel more comfortable. But I've also studied birds and lichens and um, butterflies and, and other forms of life as well to to better inform the work that I do. Yeah, yeah, because they are, of course, part of the vegetation system in their own way, right? 
yeah, everything's related. <laughs> so take us back a little bit. Where were you born and raised and who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a person for whom the words classical stoicism and all things are related would be a, a, a critically defining value system, Andrea? Sure. So I was born at Stanford on the San Francisco Peninsula um, and grew up mostly in Los Altos and then in San Francisco. So I spent a lot of my days in my yard and in the local regional open space preserves, exploring plants and animals and wanting to know what everything was and how everything worked. So a deep curiosity about the natural world. Um, I lived in several places in San Francisco, mostly in the Richmond district, and um, actually lived for uh, quite some time across the street from Golden Gate Park and spent a lot of time there. And in particular in the California Academy of Sciences um, was part of the monkey morning club at the zoo. So, um, you know, just really immersed myself in in the natural world and whatever aspects of the natural world that I could get growing up in the city. Um, some of the things that informed my journey into natural, into classical stoicism actually started uh, watching Star Trek. So I've always been a very, very passionate person and understood that my expression of my passion was often daunting to other people. And so my early impulses were to kind of clamp down on that in the classic like Mr. Spock version of appearing to be unmoved by things and moved only by logic, but realized soon after that, that it's not really who I am and that my passions do really drive me. Um, so I don't show them, but they're definitely there. And I, I, did a lot of looking at um, my mother's side of the family is Italian and um, kind of that Roman version of stoicism is what really helped define um, kind of the way that I think about and move through the world. Interesting. Yeah. Were, uh, were either of your parents or anybody in your young life, were they gardeners and in relationship to land and plants in, in these ways, Andrea? No, not, not at all. Um, my dad has always been interested in nature and hiking, but there wasn't any strong gardening influence or interest in plants. Um, there was a scientific background. My dad's a research biochemist hmm. by training. Yeah, I think it was just, I don't know how it came to be. Hmm. And are you a gardener? Do you garden in your own spaces or do you mostly have a relationship with plants in, in a professional and in a field sort of relational setting? I garden a bit. I am a lazy gardener. <laughs> um, in that I pick plants that I think are going to be hardy without much care. Mm -hmm. um, oddly enough, I 
prefer to spend my time caring for the wild yeah. rather than my own. My yeah, own yeah, yeah. Yard. That's great. That's great. For for me, it's all a form of gardening in a sort of, you know, bigger, broader way than a smaller um, individuated way, which is all, it's all in there for me. So take us on your, your research and scientific path. You, you get, you head to college, you study what, and, and then you land your first um, career oriented job. Take us on that storyline? Sure. I went to Lewis and Clark College up in Portland and Mm. studied biology, um, minored in chemistry, and spent uh, three field seasons in the summer um, doing research out on Cascade Head, which is a coastal grassland and nature conservancy owned preserve um, with Dr. Paulette Birzachudek on the mostly on the larval host plant of the Oregon silverspot butterfly, which is an endangered butterfly that feeds exclusively on, in that area, on the early blooming blue violet. Um, so getting to understand the dynamics of coastal grasslands and the species that live there um, in a really beautiful place. And that's what really solidified my desire to become a land manager um, and vegetation ecologist. So after college, um, I bounced around quite a bit and had a lot of different, more kind of administrative database type of jobs. But um, a few years after college uh, was an eco-associate, which is Environmental Careers Organization, an intern with the Bureau of Land Management out of their Medford office mm. um, and was doing vegetation mapping and plot surveys throughout um, their different what they call resource areas. Can you define a little bit that idea, like give a little greater illustration of what you mean by vegetation mapping? Because this is going to be important as we move forward in the conversation, I think, and to give people an idea of what's involved and and why it's such an effective tool. Sure. And I was um, kind of going to get into that with kind of what I was doing. Yeah, great. Okay. Um, so the vegetation mapping that we were doing um, is not really similar to the type of mapping that is going on right now in California, which is tremendously important for understanding the patterns of vegetation and the types of species that grow in different areas of the state. Um, What this was is largely to support the Northwest Forest Plan, which um, came about through the listing of the Northern Spotted Owl. And this was mostly associated with um, the way that the Forest Service was mapping vegetation at the time, which is looking at what could be in a particular area. Um, So what we were doing is going around and um, in different areas, we would go to a particular location um, and set up a plot, which is an area of land where we would um, kind of measure the vegetation and the different types of species that were there and kind of key it out to a particular type of vegetation. And so most of the time in the areas where we were, it was a particular um, association of vegetation that was kind of Douglas fir and cream bush ocean spray 
and Western modesty in which are, you know, that's kind of like the tree layer, the shrub layer and the Mm -hmm. herb layer, the dominant species there. Yeah. Okay. Um, And that was a a typical Southwestern Oregon, Northern California type of vegetation. Mm -hmm. And yeah, keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, got to do that in and around Butte Falls and Ashland and Crater Lake. Um, So really discovering the diversity of the Klamath region, which is a beautiful area. Yeah. In far Northern California and Southern Oregon. Um, From there, came back down to the Bay Area and did a little work in a law firm, again, falling back on my administrative skills, and then got a job um, as a seasonal, which was a kind of six-month limited duration appointment up at Redwood National and State Parks, um, which is in uh, based in Crescent City, California. And was uh, kind of a their their term for their seasonal position was a biological science technician plants. Mm. Um, so doing a lot of mostly a lot of invasive plant removal and mapping. It was in support of a grant application that they were putting together on weed removal in old growth redwood forests. And so they eventually got that grant, and I got the job that was funded by that grant. Um, And then there was a permanent position that opened up doing more broadly vegetation ecology type of work in the parks. Um, So it was a permanent position and I successfully competed for that one and got to do a lot more um, kind of grassland monitoring and and management and um, was able to work in other areas of the park Mm-hmm. and helped to drive a lot of invasive species work and rare plant monitoring. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Andrea Williams, the Director of Biodiversity Initiatives with the California Native Plant Society and contributor to both the proposed California Seed Strategy and from there, the National Seed Strategy, is our guest today. We'll be back for more with Andrea and more on biodiversity conservation through seed after a quick break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. Another way the Conservancy meets their mission is through their Garden Masters series. This series offers in-depth study programs that bring garden enthusiasts together in otherwise closed but significant landscapes with innovative thought leaders and experts in horticulture and design. These programs provide an opportunity to meet like-minded, curious plant folk while exploring the philosophy of garden creation, design theory, and diverse gardening traditions. More information on the 2023 Master's Series can be found at gardenconservancy.org. 
Hey, it's Jennifer. I am so pleased to share with you all the news that my third book, What We Sow, on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds is set to publish on September 19th of 2023, just in time for the autumnal equinox and published again like my other books by Timber Press. The uncorrected galley arrived in my mailbox last week, and I can tell you, It's an amazing experience to see and hold the work of several years, if not much of my lifetime, in my hands in book form. This never gets old. This book is the story of my own studies in seed as a gardener, as a hiker, as someone both curious and concerned about how the seeds of our world for food, for environmental health, for commercial purposes large and small, how this seed is faring at this exact moment in time, and why it should matter to all of us garden and plant people. Why we should each take on our own seed literacy work with some of the great teachers of our times. The seeds of our places themselves, of course, but also the very dedicated seed keepers of our time, many of whom have shared their knowledge and passion here on Cultivating Place these past six years. Because if we're going to help ensure the very best care and keeping of seed for the future of our shared earth, we first have to learn to know the seed, to see the seed, and to appreciate the seed. As one reviewer wrote about the new book, What We Sow, quote, This is a tale of what we choose to see and what we haven't been taught to see, of what we choose to seed and what we choose not to seed. I really hope you're all going to enjoy this book. We're back now to our conversation with Andrea Williams, the Director of Biodiversity Initiatives with the California Native Plant Society. As we come back, we're chatting more about the rare and invasive plant monitoring Andrea was involved in and how interesting this work is on the ground. So we did a lot of English ivy, English holly, and ketoneaster removal in the old growth redwood forest. So those are three shade tolerant species. A lot of weeds can't grow in old growth redwoods because they're so shady. So those three weeds in particular were, were an issue there. Some of the weeds along the coast, which is another really important system at redwood, is European beach grass. And that creates these massive foredunes and prevents kind of the the shifting of sands, which is really important for the Mm. species that live there. Um, And because coastlines have been so, you know, kind of built up and the movement of sand has been so limited and there have been so many changes to the coast, there were actually a lot of rare species there. And so I was monitoring beach leia and um, beach glenia, which is sort of this like cauliflower that grows in the sand. And uh, let me think of the common name, like it's Abronia umbellata, breviflora, um, pink sand verbena. Yeah, it's so pretty. Yeah, yeah, so really beautiful plants. 
That invasive grass, the dune, the, the non-native dune grass, mm-hmm. behaves a little differently than our native dune grasses. Very much so. Yes, our yeah. native dune grasses, they don't restrict the sand movement. Um, they're much sparser in how they grow. Gotcha. So, okay, so you go from this project where you're you're kind of expanding what you are looking at and how you are managing and working with or partnering with these systems to help like improve balance in the systems, as it were. Where do you go from there? So philosophically, looking for um, more of a professional term appointment. So the technician series kind of um, maxes out a particular level and it's not, you can't really advance beyond that unless you go into the professional series. Um, so I was looking to progress in my career and um, successfully competed for an inventory and monitoring biologist job at the San Francisco Bay Area of National Parks. Now, I want to unpack that a little bit because you said you wanted to, um, you know, progress your career. But there were a couple of things I think I remember from speaking with you before that equaled progressing your career. And and part of it was this increased complexity of how you were stewarding systems of a specific place. Am I right when I say that? To a certain extent, yeah. I I learn things quickly and I don't want to say I bore easily, but I'm, I'm generally, once I understand something and I do it well, I'm kind of ready to move on to the next thing. Um, and so after several years at the park of kind of feeling like I was able to do this and do this well and make a lot of impact and improve things, I was kind of ready to move on to another space where I could have not necessarily a greater impact, but an impact in a different way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So you, you get this job, you move South and talk about the, the work you start doing there and, and the, the programs you initiate and, and kind of manifest there, Andrea. Sure. So as the inventory and monitoring biologist for the network of national parks, I had three major areas of responsibility. And one was to write a protocol for the early detection of invasive plant species in the parks. Um, And the parks that we're dealing with are Point Reyes National Seashore, Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which includes the Presidio, and um, Pinnacles National, which was Pinnacles National Monument, is now Pinnacles National Park, um, as well as John Muir and Eugene O'Neill, which are two relatively small parks in the East Bay, um, more cultural parks, but do abut some really big um, East Bay Regional Parks and other open space. So the natural resources there are also important. Mm-hmm. These are some big spaces you're talking about. Yes, very much so. Yeah. 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 Um, So early detection of invasive plant species, figuring out what plants are kind of the priority for different types of monitoring um, and mapping and how we're going to map and target for removal. 
particular populations. So what is the prioritization of the areas that we're looking for and the species that we're looking for? How does that all come together and, and who's going to be doing what work? Mm -hmm. um, so working very closely with the vegetation ecologists of each of the parks um, and then setting up kind of a training program for volunteers to help do a lot of this work as well as um, seasonal staff and, and permanent staff. So that was the, the bulk of the work that I did, but I also contributed to the refinement of um, monitoring protocols for a couple of rare plant species, um, mostly in Point Reyes National Seashore, which has a tremendous number of rare plants being, right. you know, being kind of a coastal park with both dune systems and wetlands and grasslands. Um, there's not much of that space left, um, so similar to Redwood National and State Parks. Um, and then the third one, which I just started on before I left, that was a plant community change monitoring protocol. And so similar to vegetation mapping, but slightly different in looking at how these plant communities are changing over time and what that means for climate change or disease or different management types. And then you are in the midst of this complexity in some of these, you know, highly pressured and highly visited and highly visible um, spaces in the in the Bay Area. I mean, Point Reyes National Seashore is is one of these really interesting intersectional um, public spaces where there's you know, there's grazing, there's a lot of tourism, there's a lot of tribal interests, and there's this ongoing desire to control the crazy amount of invasive plants and protect this really interesting diversity of rare plants. And um, and that's that's a lot, that's a big chunk to take on um, with both you know, the vagaries of of federal and state uh, budgets and um, the influx and, and outflow of, of volunteer labor. Where do you go from there? You've already you've already intimated that you were in the middle of this one project as you um, as you are about to be leaving. Where did you go to? And, and yeah, tell us the next step. Sure. Uh, the next step was wanting to get back into land management myself. And so the inventory and monitoring program is, as, as the name says, about inventory and monitoring. So you can suggest action to be taken, um, but you don't actually have control over what happens with the information that you provide. Oh, and okay. so um, on, on the other side of that, there was a job that opened at the Marin Municipal Water District, which doesn't sound like a, a natural resource heavy area, but they actually steward about 22,000 acres of watershed lands in in Mount Tamalpais in Marin County and a little bit right. in West Marin. So systems that I'm really familiar with, but also um, some really beautiful areas of grassland and um, some interesting serpentine areas, which are Kind of a different soil type that has its own endemic types of plants. So really beautiful areas, um, really interesting work, and um, just a, a suite of work that I could carry forward from my past, but also 
um, a space where I could make some additional impacts. Right, right. Tell us about tell us about your years at the this project at Mount Tamalpais and um, and some of the things you were really proud of having um, you know realized in, in close to fullness for 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 your what your conception was. Sure. So the work that I was doing um, was somewhat similar, but at a higher level than what I was doing at Redwood National and State Parks, in that I was responsible for a lot of the invasive species removal, um, rare plant monitoring, uh, monitoring and surveys ahead of projects like trail reroutes or culvert replacements. Um, or things like that so that there weren't impacts or I could reduce the impacts to native plant species and rare species. Um, but really interesting work in kind of figuring out where we were able to apply our resources to the, to the best effect. And so that's everything from where do we create new fuel breaks? Um, how often do we maintain our fuel breaks? Where do we put our um, our priorities for invasive species removal? Where do we use volunteers in weed removal or in monitoring? Um, how do we get people in the community involved in the work that we're doing? And so in addition to sort of the, the logistical um, kind of calendaring out and figuring out what work we're doing when and with what crews, there was also some space to involve the community and to, to build partnerships so that we could strengthen the work that we were doing. And one of the things that, um, I'm, well, two of the things that I'm probably most proud of are um, the work that we started for the centennial of the water district, which was in 2012, um, in looking at um, having that be a benchmark where we would do kind of a comprehensive botanical survey of the watershed and we could we could look back at the past hundred years of what has changed on the watershed um, mm. through partnering with the California Academy of Sciences and looking at their herbarium specimens and comparing to what we had today. And then in another hundred years, somebody could look back and know that, you know, at this period of time, we had done a fairly comprehensive survey of the plants um, and knew what was growing where. Yeah, this was a ended up being a five-year community science-based survey um, with oh, a lot awesome. of the really great botanically expert and botanically interested volunteers um, in and around the Marin area. Oh, that's fabulous! Yeah, 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 yeah. So that work helped to drive. Um, you know, we had, I think, four goals, um, one to to fill gaps in the collections at the California Academy of Sciences so that we had kind of full representation of what was on the mountain. Um, another was to create a constituency for the, the botanical resources on the mountain. Um, another one was to, to complete that survey um, so that we had that benchmark and, and we were really successful in meeting all of those goals. Mm -hmm. And then because of that, we were also able to, to say what has changed on the mountain. What are the plants that have come in um, since there was a survey? What are the plants that since they're, you know, in the past 50 or 100 years? 
And then what are the plants that maybe have disappeared? And what might be the possible reasons for that? Right. And there's quite a bit of complexity to that, right? I mean, that's sort of a silly question, but there is a lot of complexity to that. And sometimes it doesn't mean you have to take an action right away because I, I think I remember you telling me some, you know, different alternate reasons why something could have moved in or out that weren't necessarily something that needed to be, quote, fixed, but just really interesting to be following and trying to understand. Right. And so we had, um, you know, I think the the new appearances of native plants were particularly interesting. So mm-hmm. we had a volunteer um, who's actually an excellent botanist in his own right, find um, a different kind of goldenrod than what usually we find on the mountain. Um, and so the question then is, you know, is this something that has moved around and we're just now seeing it? Um, like, has it always been there and nobody's ever bothered to find that? Um, or is it that this is a, you know, this is a shift eastward from westward populations or southward from northern populations? Um, and then similarly, kind of the species that have disappeared, I really thought it was going to be a lot about fire suppression um, because we hadn't had really like big fire more than an acre or so on the watershed since 1945. Um, Mm. So it was a period of, you know, 70 or 80 years since we'd last had a fire. And so I thought a lot of the fire following species would be the ones that had disappeared, but it turned out that it was a lot of the grassland and wetland or, you know, wetter area species were dropping out. Um, And so that to me is, you know, part of that is climate change and part of that is kind of an, an overall grassland loss. Right. Um, so right. that's really interesting. But um, the other part of yeah. that is that um, since that time, you know, just the the mere fact of calling attention to these species means that we're looking for them. And so they have actually found, I found one of them and then um, a volunteer found another one. And the the person who took my place at the water district found the third. We've actually managed to take three species off of that list of potentially extirpated, which means locally extinct um, species. So that's yeah, you know, it's always great when you can yeah. when you can do that. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Andrea Williams is the director of biodiversity initiatives with the California Native Plant Society. As such, her work contributes to both the proposed California seed strategy and from there the national seed strategy, both related to the 30 by 30 and otherwise biodiversity restoring and preserving initiatives rolling out across the country this year. We'll be back for more with Andrea and more on biodiversity conservation after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So please know that every person who is a current monthly donor to Cultivating Place or anyone who has donated $100 or more in the last year, as of September 1st of this year, 2023, you will automatically be sent a signed copy of What We Sow as a very sincere thank you from me to you. A humble and heartfelt 
thank you for all of your support and for your support literally making both the weekly production of Cultivating Place and the time and focus to write this book possible. If you're not a current monthly supporter or have not contributed to Cultivating Place in the last year, but would like to before September 1st, simply follow the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com to do so. And not to worry, even if you are not a monthly supporter or otherwise one-time contributor, you'll also be able to just buy the book, of course. Signed copies will be available for pre-order right now at cultivatingplace.com forward slash books, and unsigned copies are already available for most large booksellers online as a pre-order. See this week's podcast show notes for links to those. And thank you. What we sow, what you sow, and what you support in Cultivating Place are good, growing things indeed. Thank you. We're back now to our conversation with Andrea Williams, Director of Biodiversity Initiatives with the California Native Plant Society, who is intermittently joined by her cat companion, Loki. As we come back, Andrea is sharing more about where better knowing and understanding seed comes into her work, trying to get ahead of invasive plants and trying to support native, rare, locally endemic, or endangered plant populations. Welcome back. At what point in this career work where you are looking at systems, you are trying to come up with human and ecological ways to not only study but uh, help regain or or at least shore up some some healthy systems in these spaces at what point does seed become a really interesting aspect of this work how how seed forms how it disperses how you can control seed from invasives and or encourage seed from um, natives in any system like these yeah i think you know that there was a an overlap between the time that we were doing our survey work and that really big drought. I mean, we're in, you know, kind of a decades long drought overall, but 2012 to 2015 were really dry years. Um, And so not necessarily in this work, but in some of the rare species monitoring, um, we were seeing plants not coming up. And so you know that they're probably there under the ground in seed banks or um, in bulbs in some sort of underground storage and just waiting kind of for the time to be right. And so that's kind of a lot of the questions that I started to ask, are there ways that we can understand the seed bank? Are there ways that we can um, influence that and think about, you know, where do we need to put our efforts or where are things just kind of waiting in a place that we can't see them. And so that's, you know, that's kind of one of the big first parts of that is just knowing that there's this whole, um, you know, underground presence of plants, which is why it's particularly difficult to, to say when a plant is extinct or when it's extirpated is that it's just, you know, because we have such a bias towards above ground, it's like, well, we can't see. Right. So we don't really know. Can you test for that? 
I mean, do you like, can you do a plot where you water and see what comes up to see, like, how do you, how do you control for what you know might be there, but you can't see? Yeah, there are kind of a a few different ways that you can do that. Um, They were all a little more intensive than I had the resources for. I didn't know that they would necessarily give me actionable information. Um, So if they're there and underground, they're waiting. Um, So I don't need to do anything. They'll express themselves when the time is right. Um, So you can do seed addition experiments as a way to kind of estimate what the germination of particular species is in an area. Um, You can excavate the seed bank and actually dig it up and either look through it or take it into a greenhouse and water it. Um, you You can do precipitation, like you can water places, but it's not it's not a one-to-one of you add water and these plants come up. There are a lot of different cues that different species use. And so that's like um, smoke, like fire. Yeah. Yeah. Cold, whatever. Yeah. And it could be like timing or ground temperature or some combination of water and heat, um, or it could be disturbance. And so that's a little more on the researchy side of things um, Mm -hmm. than what I was doing. And so take us to becoming a member of CNPS and and ultimately taking on this role of director of biodiversity initiatives. What does this mean? And then we'll get into some of the seed strategy work you are involved in. Sure. So one of the other things that I really enjoyed doing at the Water District, which was kind of after we had done um the the botanical inventory yep. is helping with the formation of the Tamalpais Lands Collaborative, which became one TAM. Um, and that's a partnership between the Water District, the state parks, the national parks, and the county and regional open space district. Um, and then the Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy as the kind of friends of o- overarching um, NGO partner. Mm-hmm. And so that's everybody who stewards lands around Mount Tamalpais. And we wanted to kind of get together and do a more regional view of what is the health of the mountain? Um, where can we combine our resources to kind of lift everybody up? Because we were kind of different in the resources that we were able to bring to bear and the information that we had to make decisions. So one of the things that came out of that was the health of the mountain, um, the peak health report. And so it was a way of of establishing um, goals for particular species or habitat types and thresholds for what we considered, um, you know, good or fair or poor um, status of those resources. Mm -hmm. And then that was, so that was a lot of, Um, setting of those thresholds and looking at information that we had to answer um, where we thought that things were an establishment of kind of confidence levels and data gaps, and then bringing that all together in a report and um, then giving that information out to 
to members of the public. So having a science symposium, presenting that information, having talks so that people um, could kind of participate in the understanding of, of how the natural world was doing. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed kind of that, that larger look um, and had spent about 10 years at the water district and was again, kind of looking to do, I don't know, I don't want to say the next big thing, um, but really interested in more of kind of statewide and policy level work. And so when the California Native Plant Society job came up, um, that's something that I jumped at. Um, and in defining the Director of Biodiversity Initiatives, it's really around the people in nature work. And so part of it is community science. Part of that is our horticulture program. Another part is our um, stewardship, restoration and land management. And then the policy work around things like um, 30 by 30, which is that large state and national international effort. Um, but also being able to comment on and, and hopefully drive some of those large initiatives that the state is doing around protecting biodiversity, around providing public access to natural resources and around responding to climate change. Yeah. And so take us into some of the key work you're doing there. And, you know, and, and I want to follow up on you saying like the next big thing, it seems to me like a very natural progression of expanding your skill set and putting it to use. And, and I want to kind of go back to that classical stoicism because you are, it seems to me um, from my seat, you know, trying to apply the lessons you've learned not only on the ground, but in this overview, um, in a in a larger and more comprehensive way, with each step up, you are going in your career. Does that sound, um, does that sound sort of accurate when you think about it in overview yourself? I think so. I mean, I think for me, there was a a long time of of learning and learning by doing. Um, yeah. and I feel like I'm moving into more of a mentorship space and making sure that the folks that um, that are helping me and helping CNPS make things happen um, have the benefit of the experience that I've had. Um, so it's kind of not necessarily easier for them, but we have more of an impact when there are more of us pulling in the same direction. Yeah. Yeah. So as the director of biodiversity initiatives, what are some of your kind of characteristic projects you're working on? And and then could you introduce people to the idea of the national seed strategy, Andrea? Sure. Um, so some of the work that I do is, is helping with the horticulture program um, and with our CalScape database to make sure that people have good information when they're making choices about native plants, um, helping our community science work. So our fire followers program, which looks at the recovery after fire um, and involves people in, in understanding and participating in that recovery because fire is always traumatic from a human perspective. Um, but it can be helpful in the natural world and it can also be 
maybe cathartic is overstating it, but um, useful for people to see the renewal on the ground um, and that it's not necessarily always a bad thing from that, from that aspect. Um, we've also started some other community science programs and then looking at our restoration work, um, trying to get a working with nature guide so that we can help to make a lot of the fuel reduction work that's happening to be more multi-benefits um, to help with native species presence and recovery, um, as well as introducing benefits for biodiversity or water retention or carbon storage, so that it's not just about, you know, let's get rid of the brush, but it's about, again, proper land management techniques and, and stewarding those natural resources so that they're resilient um, and that benefits us as well. And then the work that um, yeah. that I'm doing with others, all the the commenting and um, giving thought to the natural and working lands climate smart strategy, which is another statewide initiative um, to look at how kind of more of the climate side of of the kind of triad of climate climate crisis, biodiversity crisis access to nature crisis. Um, so yeah. that's a little more on the climate side. And then the 30 by 30 initiative, which is much uh, more strongly about the biodiversity and access to nature pieces. So making sure that those three, um, you know, the three corners of the triangle, the three legs of the stool, however you want to conceptualize it, are present in all of those efforts. Um, and then in understanding both of those documents and just in looking ahead at the investments that the state is making, both in wildfire recovery and also in, you know, in building this restoration economy is the, the need for seed, the need for the right seed in the right place at the right time, which is the, the ethos and mission of the national seed strategy. And so there have been, um, there's been some good work in kind of the Great Basin sagebrush ecosystems and then in the Mojave Desert systems that have brought people together in defining, you know, what are the most important species that we can really focus on to make sure that we have adequate seed resources to put back in after fire or to recover or to support species like the desert tortoise or the sage, mm -hmm. sage grouse. Right. Um, and so in looking at both the national seed strategy, which has been tremendously important and, and influential, and also, you know, the work of our near neighbors, well, I mean, Mojave and, and Great Basin do, you know, they are a part of California, but the California floristic province itself, which is the most of what California is, um, doesn't have its own seed strategy. And we're tremendously complex um, there are a lot of players. It's a huge area. It's tremendously diverse, um, but also, you know, there's a huge need. So what are the priority species? Um, where are our seed zone boundaries? Who are, who's going to be collecting the seed? Who's going to be processing the seed? Who's going to be storing it and growing it um, and getting it out on the landscape and providing training for people to do everything from seed collection to restoration practice to post restoration monitoring so that we know that we're successful in our work. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. And, and that sort of simple phrase, like getting the, the seed we need in the places that it needs to be 
involves, you know, as you were intimating, like it is for restoration. It is for support, restoration after human um, impact or restoration in the face of climate change or, you know, revegetation in something like the um, Klamath River revegetation and restoration plan as that river goes to being undammed. And like, talk about, you know, some of the challenges in this work, sort of taking the um, the mandates and the hopes of the the national seed strategy um, and applying them on a local level a- and why it's important that you can't just, you can't order a load of, you know, native, I don't know, purple needle grass from a commercial grower out of Iowa in order to restore some of these places or meet some of these goals for the 30 by 30 initiative, Andrea, because it, it gets very nuanced in these big sweeps of, of conceived projects. Right. And so there are a lot of, you know, cautionary tales that can, can help inform the work that we do. One is in Texas, they had long been seeding their roadsides with their state flower, the Texas blue bonnet, and had kind of knocked out a lot of the local diversity because they were sourcing their seeds from, I think, a single farm in, I want to say, Montana. Um, And so a lot of that local variation had been kind of drowned out. There's a similar worry in California in some places with the California poppy, which is tremendously locally diverse. Um, Depending on the taxonomist, there there have been as many as 99 varieties of of poppy named. Um, They're not all recognized, but it is kind of an example of the local diversity that, that that plant has. And so when you think about biodiversity, it's actually the diversity of everything from genes all the way up to ecosystems. And so there's the potential for local adaptation or species that we don't necessarily recognize yet because we haven't looked hard enough to be swamped out if we are applying large amounts of seed from non-local genetics or substituting species or moving species around without the correct thought. And so the El Segundo blue butterfly needs a particular species of lupin, I believe, to grow. And, you know, there's when there was a substitution in a restoration site of a different lupin species, the butterfly wasn't able to use it. And so particularly if you're restoring for rare species, you need to be extra careful. And so when when can you make make substitutions? When is that appropriate? Um, and then the other part of the seed strategy is making sure that you don't need to have substitutions made because you have the species that are appropriate for the site that are available to you. Gotcha. Yeah. And the scale at which we're talking about this quantity of seed can you touch on on that a little bit? Um, and I think the other thing that is important, and it goes back to something you said in in your earlier work, um, and I, I can't remember if it was up in Oregon or if it was when you first started back in the Bay Area, but this idea of incorporating 
you know, access to spaces and the the care of those places and their systems and including all of this together. And I think that's going to come up in who these stakeholders are, because there's been some really important, I think, shifts in paradigm and inclusion in how the national seed strategy is coming down and who the stakeholders are that are kind of embedded in how we come up with this strategy. Because it's not just coming from some scientist in some faraway lab saying, you should do this, this, and this. It is is much more comprehensive and holistic than that. Sure. Um so a lot of a lot a lot to unpack in your question there. Right, right. Um and you know, your your mention of the Klamath Dam removals has me thinking of um of Brooke, who was also on the panel and maybe you've already spoken with her. So um she know, will her- be uh she and uh that revegetation program with um the Yurok tribe and uh with Joshua Chenoweth, who is one of the, I think, I can't remember if it's BLM or um, Game and Fish, anyway, also a a vegetation ecologist working on that reseeding will be among these, um, this series on the 30 by 30 initiatives and the way it's sort of panning out. Yeah. That's great because it is, you know, it's difficult to think of kind of like biodiversity being at all of these scales, the national seed strategy is also meant to function at all of these scales. And so it's everything from, you know, local seed collection, putting it back out on the land that it was taken from after you do a project or after a fire um, to trying to serve the needs of, you know, post wildfire seeding, which isn't necessary on every acre, that was burned, but we're seeing more intense wildfires, which will kind of bake the bake the soil underneath the fire if it's hot enough. And so that can destroy that responsive capability of the seed bank. Um, so needing to to seed, you know, up to a million acres in a year in different parts of the state, what does that look like and and who has the responsibility for what pieces of that? So it's kind of bringing everybody together on those different pieces. And if we are all networked in a way that we're sharing information um, and agreeing on priorities, then we'll be more resilient than if we were all just kind of working on our own piece of land or, um, you know, managing our own species for sale. And I don't think I began to even address your question. So no, no, that's okay because there there are going to be multiple conversations about this. But I think one of the important, um, and I'm trying to look it up right now as we talk. But one of the important um, aspects to this national seed strategy is the real clarity from this moment in time that in order to not only identify the spaces that need to be added to the 30 by 30 initiatives or that need to be identified by the Native Plant Society and what other AFR agency there might be in California versus the Great Basin versus Texas, you know, that 
you you have to identify them. You have to put the plan in place. You have to get the human power in place to oversee a restoration or conservation or preservation um, program. And then you need to start actually doing the the hands-on land work. But you can't wait until the hands-on land work in order to have the seed or the plants ready. You have to be doing that now, even though you don't know exactly what every detail is for that land work that's going to happen in three years, four years, five years. Um, you know, I know officially it's by 3030 for these these funding cycles. But I mean, we're talking about going forward, you know, mm -hmm. for the next seven generations. So um, the the foresight that we are trying or we are seeing our agencies and land managers and, and you know, stakeholders, which is such a weird word, but people that care about these things, like the tribes, like the water conservation districts, like the, you know, land conservancies and just, you know, like local Audubon societies or native plant societies, all of these groups care and they all have really important um, knowledge and skills and experience in their places to add to having the best rollout as as we can. And I think one of the important things from my mind is that the national seed strategy articulated and and included that tribal groups should be included in decision making and planning at every step of this uh, process. And that's a new requirement that I just couldn't be happier about. Should it have happened a hundred years ago? Yes. But is it happening now? Yes. And I think that's just fabulous. Yeah. And I think to that point, you know, that's part of the unease around the word stakeholders. It's like, well, tribes are not stakeholders in this. They're kind of the original stewards right. of the land. And it's not the stake that they have, it's, it's so much it's more care. than that. Yeah. Right. I mean, and that's true for all of us. I mean, you said it right in the beginning, Andrea, you know, that this isn't just a job, this is a worldview for you. And I think, you know, those words, like the word natural resource or, um, you know, land management, they're all very uh, obfuscating words that, that get in the way, but they, they serve their purpose on a piece of paper for a grant application. Uh -huh. But I think it's important that we identify um, and make visible the fact that we are all caring humans who are trying to do better by one another and by um, these these relatives, as you said, you know, which is the worldview of of many land based peoples and of classical stoicism, that this is our home and these are all relations. Yeah, yeah. When you think about how the the planning is going and and the different people who are giving input into this planning process for a you know a quote unquote California seed strategy. Maybe run us through who are some of the other groups uh, involved in the work, in addition to the California Native Plant Society, and and talk a little bit about some of the some of the if there are um, milestones you've already hit or uh, you know um, criteria you've established for our seed strategy, um, and and how how you're feeling about that. Yeah, I think 
you know, it's it's fairly easy to outline the seed strategy because the, the goals and objectives don't necessarily change from a national level to a state level, but it's it's kind of getting the agreement on how do we actually make it happen. So you can say, you know, identify the important quote unquote workhorse species that we're gonna to need to focus on getting increased and making sure that we have ready availability. But actually, you know, identifying those species throughout California, what does that look like? Similarly, um, you know, the seed zone question. So do we have the, the science and the research behind where are the important genetic differences between these zones for these species, like where does the population kind of shift in its genetic makeup so that we don't mm -hmm. want to transfer across those boundaries. So it's it's been fairly easy to identify like what needs to happen and who needs to be involved and what we need to do, which is really what the strategy is all about. So that part is great. I yeah. tend to jump ahead in my mind to, to actually making it happen which is where mm -hmm. a lot of the complexity does tend to come in. Um, so right now we're working closely with the large federal landowning agencies, the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, um, the National Park Service, and then also at the state level with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, Food and Ag, um, state parks, and then um, bringing Caltrans on board and, and kind of the management of their areas. So a lot of these, it, part of it is a lot of the agencies, each one has their own kind of mandate and way of doing things and the way that they chunk up California into different regions. Um, and so where can we find that common ground and, you know, identify what's going to work for everyone while still maintaining kind of the integrity of of these plant populations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I feel good about the conversations that we're having. Um, everybody's really engaged. And in particular, the federal agencies have seen a lot of funding come through in the Inflation Reduction Act that's specifically targeted for restoration under the national seed strategy. So that's great. Um, there's a lot of building that's going on there and the work that we're doing is kind of connecting so that, you know, the Forest Service is really interested in bringing up, um, you know, where are the where are the plant material centers and what can we do as far as seed storage and the National Park Service is really interested in, you know, where are the places where we can where we can have seed increase done and also kind of broadening the thinking out to okay, there's also been funding that's been identified to work with tribes. Can we kind of influence that to also help meet um, some of the seed increase needs? So if, if tribes are wanting to start a native plant nursery or do co-management of particular areas, then can we also, you know, kind of use the funds that are available to help meet everybody's needs? So it's it's helping to broaden out the thinking and to get us all collectively achieving those needs. Yeah. In terms of, you know, what you see as the greatest strat uh, challenges in in meeting this strategic planning, 
what do you see as the greatest challenges right now? Um, I think to a certain extent, just the speed at which everything is moving right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So um, wanting to get this strategy together before everybody is started moving in their own individual directions. So keeping keeping the ethos of like, let's all move in the same direction. We don't have to do the same things, but if you're, you know, if you want to take on this piece of it and help to lead that part, um, you know, what does that look like for everyone? So making sure that we're not leaving each other behind in the work that we're doing. And then as you think about this as an individual, especially an individual with the worldview that you you come to this with, Andrea, are there ways that you see individual people out there listening, they can be involved, stay abreast of the situation, help or participate in any way? Yeah, I think, you know, the there are a lot of different ways that people can participate and it really depends on, you know, there are so much, there's so much work to do. You don't need to change what you like to participate in it. And so that's everything. If you want to get out and help on the land um, is looking at either California native plant society chapters or particular land managing agencies, or even a local public park that is, is needing help with stewardship and restoration work. Or maybe there's a local native plant nursery that you wanna volunteer at. Or um, maybe you wanna volunteer and help with seed collection or um, you know any one of a number of those types of things. And if you're not yeah. really kind of an outdoors wanting to help sort of person, but you want to help drive policy um, is to express interest in things like making sure that roadways are landscaped with local native plants or that public spaces are landscaped with local native plants because you know part of the national seed strategy is forecasting need which is tremendously variable but if we have secondary markets um for that seed so that it can be used before it you know before its expiration date, quote unquote, before it's not as viable as it should be, right? then having that seed be able to be purchased and put it either into like traditional retail markets where people can buy native plants for their yards or put into municipal spaces like public parks and gardens or landscaping around municipal facilities or even mandating native landscaping in new construction whether that's industrial construction, like, you know, business parks and things like that, or even around um, new homes or new apartment buildings. So there's a lot of spaces where people can make a difference. Um, And even just advocating for native plant protection is is an important space um, because if we don't have plant populations protected, they can't persist in their own right, but they also can't contribute to that Kind of evolutionary future. Um, so once that local genetic population is gone, that lineage is, has disappeared. A lot of work, a lot of really good work, and a lot of philosophical opportunity here, I think, for all of us to align our own 
um, value systems, with our hopes for the restoration and support of these living systems all around us, and of which we are a part. And if we if we don't see it that way, we tend to do, I think, more damage um, than if we do see it that way and and act accordingly. Yeah, and I think you know the the human urge to act is is a good one. Um, and the thing that I always like to keep in mind is that to me, like plants and vegetation and animals and, you know, wild things, they have agency in their own right. And so to be able to give them the space that they need to kind of live their lives and, and contribute to the future of, of, you know, their own genetics, which is a a coarse way of saying like, you know, your ancestors and your descendants. Yeah. And to make sure that we're not like messing that up with our urge to act. So, you know, moving seeds around and moving plants around because it sounds good for climate change um, is something that, you know, that always concerns me um, is that you're kind of, you're kind of moving everything around without really understanding um, what the further implications are and, and some things can't be undone once they're done. So with that, I'd love to end with, if you as a gardener, as an ecologist, as a classical stoic, as a, as a human um, out there on the trails had two or three plants that you, you particularly enjoy meeting or seeing in the world around you, what would those plants be, Andrea? Um, I think number one for me is always going to be California wild oats, Danthonia californica. Um, it's a, a coastal grass and I have a long relationship with it. It's got some just amazing adaptations and hardiness and, um, just like little eyelashes around the collar of where the the blade meets the stem and, um, Mm. you know, kind of a, an inflorescence, like the, the way that the, the grass flowering head is arranged. It always looks to me like the, the sign for, I love you in sign Uh, language and so I call it the grass that loves you back um Mm -hmm. it's got little little seeds hidden within the stem and so if it gets nibbled off at the top um because it's super tasty it'll have those seeds kind of in the in the flowering stem hidden down below that that can carry on the the grass so that one's a a big one for me the state grass um stipa pulchra purple needle grass is another one that I'm always just a big fan of it's it's tremendously beautiful in kind of this, the, the purplish, shiny um, flowering heads that wave in the breeze. It's a very mobile grass and very hardy and long lived and really great. It helps to water to infiltrate way down in the soil. It helps to build soil in really clay systems and helps other species to persist. persist. Um, so just really hardy and drought tolerant um, and beautiful. And I think probably the th- Third one that I really appreciate is mugwort, um, which is Artemisia deglossiana, um, grows a lot in kind of wetter riparian systems and beautiful smell, um, beautiful leaves. And you can also use it to kind of relieve itching and stings. If you take a leaf and kind of rub it against, you know, a poison oak itch or a scratch or a sting from stinging metal. Um, it'll grow near those plants and is kind of 
medicine for those those pieces. A lot of people also use it to guide their dream work um, and in kind of that sort of thoughtful divination of the future. Hmm. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. It's been wonderful. And I really appreciate your, your having me and kind of asking me the, the really probing questions. Andrea Williams is the Director of Biodiversity Initiatives with the California Native Plant Society. Her work contributes to both the proposed California Seed Strategy and from there, the National Seed Strategy. Andrea has two decades of experience in science-based public lands management, monitoring rare plants and plant communities, and carrying out project compliance surveys, mapping, and invasive plant removal as well as responding to landscape level threats. She has worked in partnership to design indicators, metrics, status, and trends for land health. For fun, she teaches grass identification and makes acronyms and plant lists. My conversation with Andrea was much longer than we had time for on air. So for the full conversation about the National Seed Strategy and the California State Seed Strategy, make sure to listen to this week's Cultivating Place podcast, which you can find over at cultivatingplace.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Speaking of plants and place, this week we have not a plant profile, but rather a botanical assignment for all of you in the remainder of May. Because if we are ever to increase our seed literacy and improve our global care of seed, we first need to learn to see seed. Wherever you may live, I wonder if you might dedicate some time between now and May 31st in learning two of the primary trees, shrubs, and grasses of your region. If you don't know when their seed forms or what their seed looks like, I wonder if you might pay attention to that. Take photos and share them with me by email or online, tagging Cultivating Place and noting your general bioregion. I will be doing the same and sharing my seasonal and regional seeds over on Instagram, where you'll find me at cultivating underscore place. I will tag my seed images with hashtag what we sow. Looking forward to your images and shares and all of us learning to see the seeds of our place. Join us again next week when we continue our multi-part seed series in conversation with Pat Reynolds of Heritage Growers, supplying native seeds, seed-grown starts, and seed conservation and restoration solutions from sourcing and growing ethically and with maximum genetic diversity and appropriate location sourcing in mind. Join us next week. 
Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.